Hello, and welcome to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. Good evening. I'm T. And I'm A. So, tonight <laughs> we are talking with Emily Nagoski about her book, Come As You Are, which has unlocked so many things for me. I mean, I texted my mother and my sister right away and said, you guys have to read this book. Yeah. Um, it will just put you at ease, mm-hmm. shed light into issues that you've been pondering for years, and uh, and Im- and possibly improve things for you, just because you have awareness now. For sure. And this is along the, lo- the lines of the books uh, that you and I T talk about all the time, which is What Do Women Want? And yeah, which Emily Bergner. mentions a couple right. times in here. And um, Daniel Sex Bergner's at Dawn. Book. And, right. and Emily's book, it's The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And it is it's all true. of that. It's very true. And I think it's like stuff you haven't heard, haven't considered. And it really shows you how, to me, kind of how behind really our understanding is. I yeah. feel like there's so much unexplored. And just the way we're territory. socially conditioned. I exactly. love Emily uses this whole anal- analogy of, you know, being taught how to garden as a child. And then once you have your own garden as an adult, you have to learn to take care of it. And um, and as you're living your life, you're seeing things that can be appro- improved upon. And then you see things that do work. And right. you're also given a garden. So you're starting with whatever you're like whatever your childhood situation was is what you have and sometimes it stinks and sometimes (laughs) and sometimes there's great things right and maybe you need to seek out those healthier things that are going to help your garden thrive if you will there's just so many factors I think that go into our sexuality and how we experience our sexuality and you know Emily touches on on I don't know who's to say all of them but many of them I don't even know all of them for sure but um (laughs) But I think uh, I think this is this is a real issue. I mean, this is why we're talking about this, and I'm not just talking about women not orgasming, but just the general. I am. No, <laughs> she is for sure. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Among other things, <laughs> but, I, I, but in general, I, I feel like we are in the midst of a revolution culturally, where redefining how we're talking about female sexuality. Yeah, and and I, I like how she talks about men's too. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Go ahead. I. Well, and I think that. Like, we're finally in a time, yeah, I think that because we're, you know, we're in, we are, this is the only time we know, this is the present, right? And so we think, we, we were talking about this yesterday, T, where we think that we're at the height of everything and that we know everything there is to know. The peak of society. But the reality is that, like, there's so much that we don't know. And we are now in a time where we're finally liberal enough and liberated enough to start talking about sex. And I feel like the conversation is really just beginning. Right. Really. Yes. And so I, so this is why I feel like we're seeing this revolution happen and all the science and all this talk about it because I think there's something in our culture that's really hungry for it. And, right. And uh, anyway, so I do think that even though we're not, you know, totally repressed women as we were maybe, you know. When I was 19. <laughs> <laughs> All right, or, I wasn't or, that bad. Or whatever, like when women couldn't vote and, you know, that right. kind of. No, or, we have this idea Chloe that we're before, liberated but, now, but there are right. so many right. inhibitions that we still have. And, and again, I and immediately so think blocks. of. Right, and I immediately think of we're talking about us in the U.S., right, whereas there's still so right. many other issues globally. And then even within the U.S., and Emily touches on this, if you're not kind of pretty little white girl, you know, what um, images in in the media are being put forward for you to consume to feel normal. I mean, basically nothing. Um, 
Mindy Kaling's a start. You know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's, there's, right, a narrow perspective on what's normal. And I think that can be really constricting and, and waste a lot of your time in, in developing a healthy sexuality. Right, right. And I, and I, I love that um, a lot. I mean, Emily's book sort of blows all this up and starts really looking at all of our boundaries around this stuff and put science behind it that is really very compelling and really makes you, makes you think. And yeah. And I like how the science is also, um, reminding us of things we've actually known for a long time in the sense of biology, like the way biology works. And she opens the book this way, you know, reminding us what our genitalia looks like, (laughs) um, for men and women and how similar they are and then where they're different. And yes. And you know what, which is, this is funny. I was watching, I was catching up on Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Oh, and I love what they're doing for sexuality on, in media. Totally. But there was this particular episode that I happened to watch last night where I don't know if you all know it, this. Spoiler but, alert. Yeah, right. But <laughs> no, no, no. It's nothing important. But where the it was sort of a, a, a subplot line that the women didn't know their female genitalia. And they like nobody oh. knew that there was a pee hole. And you're, I mean, this oh, was. Oh, right. A, I remember that one. This was a prison community where a lot, most of the women were from like you know, poor ethnic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, but less educated backgrounds. And, and to me, I'm like, Oh, come on, that's ridiculous. But they even hinted to the main character, the educated white girl, not really totally knowing what her genitalia is. So even, even that something as simple as that, like it still baffles my mind that like, we really, like if you really ask people, how many people really know what's going on? And then, so when you get to the level of detail that we're talking about with Emily, it's like, that's what I'm saying. It's like there's so much, and it and it's still, again, I just assume. I just assume that of course we all know what's going on, but we don't. Right? No, we have no idea. And then I, I also it it was a reminder to um, like I, I liked her her reminder about yeah okay what you just said about knowing what's going on down there, but also, um, I have looked at my own before, but I find it difficult to crane my neck and really get a, a good look at it. Of mirror. course I've used the mirror, I, but I've never examined it closely. And I also have never, well, what do I want to say? I loved how in her book, she talked about how a partner could even look at it and describe it to you and kind of the intimacy that creates. And I, yeah. I loved that idea of connecting mm-hmm. with your partner in a way that's like, well, they see it all the time in True. detail. And they love it. Right. Typically. <laughs> yeah. No, they do. And, and, I'm, and I want to know what they're seeing because they actually can see it at a, a, an easier angle. I think a better angle Not than a mirror. Not even angle, but perspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you're right. That is interesting. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that exercise. Okay. Good. <laughs> You'll lover. have to report back. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I hear so many, T, you and I are young women who are, we're, we're not married and we don't have kids, but we are looking toward not, I don't know if we're like, not toward meaning that we're aching to get there, but that's it, perhaps in Presumably our future. Presumably going to happen. Right. Down the road. It's so happening to we're, my friends. You know, we're not, we're embarking along this journey. And so you and I are looking at all of this, right? And I talk to so many married people. I mean, I think this is the pervasive stereotype where men complain that they don't get sex enough. Mm-hmm. And women complain that it's a chore mm-hmm. or that they're bored or that mm-hmm. they don't sexually desire their partner. Even though they may love him. Even though they may totally love him. I mean, of course, they have a committed life together. Right. And that they would never want to leave that. But so, and it's like. Yeah, the and motor then, is not on. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so then from that comes the, I think, largely accepted assumption that 
women aren't sexual or women just don't want it. Ugh, I hate that phrase so much about I know that, women but that's not being the, sexual. That's no, the stereotype. And I, I appreciate you saying it. And and I have to say, like, I've held this. Like, and there is probably some deep down cultural imprinting that is still alive in me around that because that because it's just what you see. It's just you. I mean, and you know, we're not stupid people. You can watch a couple and see that a woman is sexually turned off. I mean, I think maybe right. I mean, well, and and I love that a book like this, "Come as You Are," is really like a reminder of, or or teaching us how to actually pay attention to the way that women experience arousal, um, because I think the signs are all there, but our culture has been driving us in a train in the opposite direction for reading right. sexuality, or we've been taught what the cues are for men. Right. Or male sexuality, and so therefore it should be the same for women. So the signs are there, and I, I have had lovers who are incredibly sensitive and attuned to it, and then I've had lovers who are not, right. um, where they are able to read the signals, and when they're not, and I'm thinking, yeah, like it's, I'm conveying it, it's there. Well, yeah, I, I, yes. At and the I, same time, we can all be better at communicating. But always, usually. Yeah. But yeah, I, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot going on. I I refuse to believe that we are destined as women to enter into a sexless, you know, non-desire, non-arousal, right, kind of life because there's kids and a steady partner in our life. And, um, and I refuse to believe that, that men are going to be deprived forever. Like, right. I just, it's, yeah, like this, that it has to, to me, be. it's like, this is not, it doesn't seem normal. It this doesn't does seem not seem normal to the me way in any way, shape, or form. Because if you take either of those two people outside of their context or their their situation, they're immediately sexually yeah. alive. So it's not that they've changed. Right. So to me, it's an indication that something's going on. And that's what we're here to look at. And I think that's what a lot of uh, Emily's addressing. So yeah. I'm so excited. And to can I also her. say, I love that there is, this book gives a vocabulary to talk with your partners. Because I, reading right. this, reflected right. on... Times that I maybe, you know, similar conversations around arousal or desire or frustrations that my partner or I felt towards each other and, and really fumbling in the dark yeah. um, to express what it was that I was feeling, you know, and then, and then maybe him not interpreting it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty cool to, to have these words that Emily has so carefully crafted for us to articulate ourselves. It's, and then it's very true. Yeah. I think that's why, you know, reading these kinds of books is so helpful. Right. Very true. So we're going to bring Emily on. We're going to talk about some of the, you know, obstacles carrying along with this conversation. And then we're going to get into um, how she how she defines and looks at desire and arousal and how those two things are separate um, and the power of context and many other things that will come up along the road. So, um, so, Can so, I yeah. say, yes. and I always love to note this, I, this isn't, I think, just about female sexuality. No. The book touches on... Um, the way arousal works in general. So I think men can gain a lot from this as well. Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. For their own, you know, their own sexuality. Anyway, just wanted so to So men, keep listening as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For yourself and your partners. <laughs> so Emily, we're bringing Emily on. She's the author of Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Um, she, you can find her on Twitter at Emily Nagoski. That's N-A-G-O-S-K-I. And her blog is thejourneynormal.com. So fascinating work all over the web. Emily, are you there? Yep, here I am. There you Hello. are. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. We're so excited if you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited. 
So, so you have congratulations on your book. It's it's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. How long did that take? That's an incredible amount of research. Uh, well, it depends how you measure, but it sort of took me eleven months from contract to delivering the book, but actually more like five years. Yeah. Right. Five years of all Life your knowledge long. accumulation. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Or my whole life, you know? True, true, well, true, true. And I do want to say, like, the, it, 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 the book is dense, but in such a good way. Um, you know, I started reading it, and I thought, okay, I don't know if I'm going to finish in time for the show, like, this kind of thing. And I, But I, I, instead of glossing, I, like, read every detail because I was learning so much. Um, and, it's, and it was great. It was great. So thank you for taking the time to really expel it out for us. <laughs> Um, oh, thank you. That's what I, exactly what I was going for. Perfect. Emily, I wanted to get started with kind of what T and I were, were talking about just before, which is touching on the obstacles and really, mm. I guess, sort of the problem, I'm putting that in quotations, or what we maybe perceive to be the problem, why you feel there's a need to have a book like this. And... Um, yeah, I guess we'll start there because yeah. for me, there's cultural, there's the way we perceive sexuality and ourselves, ourselves, and then there's our relation with other people. So could you, and you have a lot of that in your book, can you touch on what you feel is, are the obstacles out there that you run into most? Yeah, the main difficulty for me is that, especially as I was in grad school and learning a lot, I started my training as a sex educator in 1995, so it's been 20 years now, and the more I learned about the science of sexuality, the more obvious it became to me that the gap between what the science believes and understands about, particularly how women's sexuality functions, and what sort of the mainstream narrative is about how sexuality functions, that gap is just enormous. Uh, and it's time to start bridging it, right? If yes. that's remotely possible. Um, so there's, I basically confront a lot of myths mm-hmm. in the book about the way women work, as opposed to the way men work. Can I ask? This is a little bit of a detailed, you know. We'll, we'll come back to this main theme, but the hymen truth. The part about the hymen. No, really. I was just <laughs> like so flabbergasted and curious about what, you know, you noted in the book that it's, that it, so, that it, it, it varies in women. It doesn't necessarily mean a puncture. It's always there. I was wondering if you could explain that better, that it's always there. So my hymen is still intact currently because I ain't no virgin. <laughs> If you had a hymen to begin with, which not everyone does, just because you have a vulva doesn't mean you have a hymen. Most people do, but not necessarily. Um, The hymen doesn't break. It can stretch. And if it does tear, it will heal. It can bruise. And again, it heals. So there is zero relationship between whether or not your vagina has been penetrated and the shape and structure of your hymen. It does change over the course of your life. So as your hormones change with puberty and then with full adulthood and menopause, it'll change. But yeah, the hymen does not break. All of that is totally just somebody made it up. Right. And I, so well, I love point example of that, that we don't know. I mean, nobody Right. knows the truth about that. No, I loved what you also commented about how um, often if there is blood, it's coming from not enough vaginal lubrication. Even, I mean, and when I read that, I thought even the first time that you have sex, is that true? 
Yeah, the most common cause of pain with intercourse, there are lots of different ones, but even with first intercourse, the most likely cause of pain is just lack of lubrication. Oh, oh. I know. How many bad experiences could be avoided? <laughs> well, then I thought it's true. I mean, in my in my own sexual development, I mean, I didn't start using lubricant until later on. And then I remember instructing lots of male friends to make sure they purchase that for their loved ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, Especially silicone lube. I am an evangelist for silicone lube. Really? Yeah. I still, I still haven't found, this is totally a sidetrack, but I still haven't like really found my lube. But I read you have a jar of lube on your desk, right? <laughs> or like little packets. Packets of lube. I have lube. a basket of little packets, yeah. Awesome. It's fantastic. You should, and give them as little gifts. And, and to your students. Mary Poppins of lube. I want to be your student. <laughs> um, yeah, I, just free giveaways. I also, uh, sorry, A, you just touched on it, and now it's But let's stay slipped. on track. I want to, of uh, what? No, but, oh, lubricant. You know what? There's, a, there's actually a natural brand that, um, that's called Yes, and I fell in love with that lube. Like Y E S, I think it has three S's in it. But anyway, yes. it's like yes exclamation point, and it's pretty rad. Oh, it's lovely. It's water based. It's very nice. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's it has a creamier quality because I know water based can dry out. I know that's not the main focus of our show. Okay, but people lube always want to know about lubes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Emily, so uh, okay, yes, so we're closing the gap on what what's the mainstream and this, I guess the science or the reality that is being discovered by folks like you. And, you know, really there hasn't been very many years of research in this topic in general, when you take a bird's eye look at it. So what's, what can you paint a picture for the mainstream? Um, I mean, I guess that would be a good place to start. Yeah. About the biology versus what's actually being told. Right. Or I mean, yeah. yeah. I feel like the, the way people expect sexuality to work is that desire will come first. It's this spontaneous sort of internal urge. You how you feel your sex drive kicking in. Um, and then so that causes you to go out into the world and pursue some sex and you find a partner and you go through the arousal process. And um, the more turned on you are, the more your genitals are responding. Blood is flowing down there. Uh, and then you get to orgasm, and orgasm is supposed to happen with penile vaginal intercourse, and in an ideal world, it happens simultaneously, mm-hmm. and then that's the complete cycle. And there isn't even one part of that that's true. Wow. That's a mm-hmm. bold statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can I say, I loved what you talked about also in the book about the definition of our anatomy down there and you're right like I call in general when I reference that area I'll just be like the vagina but in fact it's the vulva as you articulate in the book and just how much um, words reflect how we feel about things socially right in our culture um, and what it's Mm -hmm. saying about how we respect it. And I think if you, when you think about it just as the vagina, what that's saying, it's really like a heterocentric, reproduction-centric view of women's reproductive anatomy, whereas when you talk about the vulva, that includes the clitoris and the internal and external labia and all the other potential sources of pleasurable sensation beyond just this is the reproductive canal. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's that's... Actually, because words have power, and the way we are labeling something is going to have a really big impact on the way we think about it, which brings me to the point, I I don't know if I read this in your book, 
or somewhere else, but <laughs> but it doesn't matter. But Meredith, I think it was Shivers. There was a, re- a sexual researcher who um, she was in her uh, you know human sexuality behavior class, and a picture of the female genitalia came up. And the whole class was like, ew. And then they show a picture of penis yep. and the, there's no reaction, right? So I just wanted, I, that was so baffling to me because it's so, it, it's so true. And we go through life really sort of not really registering this. Acknowledging the low level of complete exactly and this is in modern day modern day America. Our vulvas, excuse me. Like modern day America, that's the pervasive undercurrent sort of thought and and I guess belief consideration of the female anatomy which is baffling to me so I think like what you mentioned earlier yes we have there's the sexual cycle that it you said is completely false that we're you're about to blow the lid on uh, or off of this whole show um, around arousal and desire and then there's really like the beliefs that we have to battle and the cultural programming yeah, the disgust in particular is because, I mean, if you feel disgusted by genitals in general, like, is that turning you on and making it easier for you to enjoy sex? No, disgust shuts sexual desire and pleasure down. Um, and it's one thing when you're disgusted by just a picture of genitals, but that's what your body looks like. That to be disgusted by your own sexual body, how can you experience and be open to sexual pleasure if your own body grosses you out? Right. And I love um, you have some great stuff in the book to actually walk people through that, like the exercise of looking in the mirror. We're going to take a short mini break. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Emily about what arousal and desire means and how it really works for men and women. Um, and how it's not what you think it is. Right. So tweet <laughs> us at TA Sex Talk. And uh, tweet Emily at Emily Nagoski and check her out at thedirtynormal.com. We'll be right back. Welcome to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. And tonight we're talking with Emily Nagoski, who's the author of Come As You Are, The Surprising New Sex That Will Transform Your Sex Life. You can find her work on thedirtynormal.com and tweet her at Emily Nagoski. That's N-A-G-O-S-K-I. Hello, Emily. <laughs> Are you there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, um, so we were talking with Emily about all 
kinds of uh, blocks and obstacles that women and I guess people well, have towards sex. The very real you factor of our own genitalia, which they're there. It's not going away. Learn to love it. <laughs> and how it's mostly biased toward, I guess, women experience that more than men. Yeah. So, Emily, what t- – so, okay, you brought us through the the mainstream cycle of sex or desire um, earlier. What's the reality? What's the reality? What's really going on? <laughs> um, and I guess so – the reality, number one, yeah. yeah, is that arousal comes before desire. Okay. And- right. So – Arousal. So, okay. So, where we have we have to begin with the dual control model. Right. Did you love chapter two? Yes, I did. And I'm <laughs> I'm still wrapping my brain around it. And and that's what I find so fascinating about. Like, I I need to read this book maybe twice because it's so new. It's such a new way of understanding my sexuality that I'm, you know, the brakes and the accelerator were such mm-hmm. a great analogy um, for what's happening. Um go ahead if you <laughs> yeah i mean i can explain yeah. a little myself so, but so we forget about genitals who cares about genitals that's really not where it's at that's not where it's happening it's and, in your brain that uh you've got a sexual excitation system which is the sexual accelerator and it notices all the sexually relevant information out in the environment and sends a signal that says turn on and we're all pretty familiar with the you know process of getting turned on by being exposed to sexy things right mm-hmm. uh at the same time that that's happening there is also a break, the sexual inhibition system, not inhibition as in shy, but inhibition as in shutting things down in your central nervous system. So it notices everything that's a potential threat or all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. And it sends a signal that says turn off. So arousal is both turning on the ons and turning off the offs. Uh, If you're in the middle of some nookie and your grandmother walks into the room, off. That's the brake slams on and turns everything off. Unless that's what you're into. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, okay, so do we have control over the offs, though? I mean, I, I imagine offs could could potentially grow to be so overwhelming and so pervasive in our life that everything is an off. You know what I mean? Like groceries, so, kids, like... I, exactly. There's... So all the mechanism itself in your brain, and there's all the stuff that stimulates it, right? There's the physical experience you have of stress, for example, and then there's all that stuff out in the world, all of your stressors. Mm. And I think that there's stuff we can do about both of those things. We can deal with our physiology in a way to maximize the ons and reduce the offs that are happening in our body. And I think we can also shift and organize our lives, prioritize sexual pleasure by creating space for it and putting away the stuff that's, you know, the laundry and the dishes and the kids and all the rest of it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, look, I'm not going to say that I'm getting esoteric here or anything. I think it's just a matter of fact. And I think more and more people are kind of tuning into this, but there's so much going on in our world and so many um, stimulators of thought and like sort of monkey brain thinking that I don't think it's going to hurt us to take some time and do some breath work and just learn how to quiet that down because it is a muscle I I feel. And if we let that get out of control, 
it can inhibit your life in many ways, but we're specifically talking about sex. And I know for me, the biggest thing that was in my way when I was going through my 20s and, you know, you know, learning about sexual activity was that my mind ruled everything. And if I couldn't get out of my mind, nothing was going on. And it took me almost mm-hmm. 10 years. Oh, sexually. I you mean, you're, totally. so you turn off. Well, yeah, but I mean, but then there's all this like cultural pressure, right? To just perform anyway, or I'm supposed to like this. But meanwhile, I'm really not, I wasn't really interested. And I thought something was wrong with me. But for me, I I did realize as I sort of evolved, I, or whatever, saw the, I don't know, whatever, grew up. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, I didn't have that kind of a guide (laughs) at that time. But I really had to learn um, or see and become aware of how, my mind, not just like busy with, you know, like menial day stuff, which was part of it, but also just, you know, anxiety and what he's thinking and, you know, perception and judgment and all that stuff. And, but that's monkey brain. So I feel like that's a huge. I also, I also loved the way that Emily, you break down how there's accelerator and brakes and how, um, for some people, the accelerator can turn on during stress and for others, you know, the brakes get turned on, which it sounds like a, your brakes get turned on. I have to say that for me, my accelerator gets turned on when I'm stressed. And I remember sitting in the library in college thinking, why am I thinking about sex right now when these papers are due? (laughs) Like nothing is stimulating in this stuffy, like old paper library. Wow. Interesting. So Emily, so it helps to, I guess, to understand this so you can understand yourself and your partner. Is it just a different mechanism? Absolutely. And you're a really, really good example there with, um, I think culturally there's a good, there's a lot of talk happening now about how much we want sex or not and how much we have sex or not and the stuff we do. But there's this big silent place around how much we enjoy the sex we're having, the internal experience, the pleasure part of it, which is if we're worried about like whether or not our partner is feeling judgmental of the shape of our bodies or if it's taking too long for us to orgasm. I was talking on the phone just this morning with a woman who's uh, approaching 40 and never had an orgasm. And that thing that you call monkey brain, she actually calls girl brain. Girl brain. Oh oh my God. Totally. Mm. Totally. I totally admire men. the noise. For I feel like the men in my life are so much better at staying quiet in that way. Sorry, I don't need to make anything. Because women, we get these cultural messages that men just, I was, I had dinner with my brother a week ago. He's 40 now and I'm 37. No, he's, he's got to be 39 and I'm 37. And he was talking about how, you know, he feels like as a guy approaching 40, like there's no pressure. He looks the way he, anybody expects him to look. He doesn't have to worry about if he gains 10 pounds or like whatever. And I was like, that must be nice. <laughs> Quite the opposite for women, right? Yeah. I mean, as you're yeah. right, this constant panic and fear of aging and it's, you know, just natural. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I, I hear this a lot from my male friends that are wonderful men who really have a hard time not dating, but no, not even dating. It's about what you're talking about, Emily, enjoying sex, like looking at the quality of the sex we're having. And they're single men who are kind of out there in the field, but they talk about women, like being with women. They're like, you know, I just, I feel like everyone's in, like my partners, they're always in their head. And this could be anything from casual sex to girlfriends, but they don't, they're, I'm hearing this consistent problem of 
feeling like they can't, they don't feel like they're the not women, connecting they're fully. not connecting and not being able to be vulnerable. And it's just mecha- ends up being this mechanical kind of thing. So I'm hearing it out there. From such an early age, we're taught to trust other people's opinions about our bodies more than we trust our own internal experience of our bodies. I don't know why that's true, but it seems almost universal that girls get taught to believe what other people tell us about our bodies. Yeah, and I I thought you did touch on on that really well in the book about um, when we're born as children and you used the Frankie and Franny example and if they're twins and they're born at the same time and how... Uh, because you can see the genitalia of the boy, there's um, more of an acknowledgement of it and an acceptance of what its function is in the world and that it's directly linked to arousal, right? Um, but that mm-hmm. for the girl, it's very different because it's Because it's hidden. internal. I don't know. I thought maybe <laughs> if you have more to say on that. Um, yeah, so the – and oh, when we're born, there's not that much of a difference really. But the way we get taught about sex is fundamentally different. So we teach girls to be afraid of sex, that it's going to be used as a weapon, unwanted pregnancy, STIs, sexual assault. Use of sex as a weapon against girls and women around the world is a massive thing. It's really dangerous. And then they get to be 18 and adult, and we expect them to be sexual powerhouses. Go. Yeah, right? Right. Like, it makes no sense. No sense at all. And it, so, it, and I don't know if it, I, I think it helps to question where these things are taught and where they come from, but I think it's just ultimately puritanical roots, I suppose. But, well, uh, and again, sorry, not to, I, no, in no, no, way no, I feel ahead. like I'm like narrating your book, Emily, but, <laughs> but the, the discussion of, <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, the discussion of, of the origins of the word in, in Latin. I mean, it's, since we've named it in the in the Latin language, you know, we've talked about it in a shameful way. Named for women. what exactly? Yeah. Sorry, pudendum. Right, the word pudendum. Oh, and the Latin derivative. What, what is pudendum? What it, it comes from the Latin word that means to make ashamed. What is pudendum? Like it's your, oh, it's you're like it your, is your everything. The pudendum is your yeah, female it's not, everything. I mean, this, what's interesting is that the word isn't really used that often anymore, but. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. I would, is it the equivalent of the vulva? That's a good question. In a is way, only I'm, I'm assuming I know. And then I go, well. Yeah, the pudenda refers to the external genitalia. Oh, that's right. Of men sort and Sort of the triangle that you can see, right? Yeah. Mm. And it comes, the root word is coming from punish. Or sh- sorry, shame. Shame. Huh. To make a shame. Yep, pudere. There you go. So. <laughs> because it's tucked away and hidden. And so therefore it's, it's shame faced, see, because it's hidden tucked between her legs. It just makes me angry. <laughs> There's a quiet anger yeah. burning inside of me and I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> right. Well, and I think about, I don't know quite how this came to be, but maybe because um, a number of years I was raised by my father. And so in a way, like sexuality wasn't talked about, but I also had like the stubbornness as a kid where I feel that often all these things were impressed upon me, but I would kind of quickly be like, well, why? Like, what do you mean? And people, you know, like, good, good yeah, you. yeah. And I, but, but it's, it, it, it's true. I mean, the message has been sent to me, to all of us for, um, 
our entire lives. I don't know. The scary thing to me is how quiet it is, in a sense, or how undercover I feel. Like, I grew up in a very liberal family. Even liberal sexually, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I yeah, feel. Yeah, I remember you talking yeah. about your mother. Um... We always talked about sex openly. I knew that my parents were sexually, at, like, nothing was hidden. I mean, they didn't have sex in front of us or anything weird or, you know, but... Yeah, it was it was constantly invited to be a topic of conversation. My like my nanny caught me in making my Barbies have sex. Oh and yeah, I did that. It, yeah, like <laughs> when I was like eight or something. And so my mother called me down. She's like, Stephanie, do you have some questions? Is there anything you'd like to talk about? You know, regarding sex. And it was a very not scary you know, wonderful experience. Did that help though? Were you, or I feel like that happened to me and I was super embarrassed. I was, I was mortified. Right. And you're like, no, I don't want to talk about it. No, but, but her being so gentle about it, it was really wonderful. My point is that I, like I grew up in like that kind of household and even I, I have all this, all these cultural crap. Like, because the messages are coming from so many other sources. Yeah. Um, (sighs) where do we go? Well, I wanted to talk about, um, the, the, the dark side, as you call it in the book, but the issue of like, or maybe we're jumping ahead a little. Well, I kind of wanted to, we, I want to go around this cycle. Like, okay. So you talked about arousal and, des- and desire being two separate, different entities, really. Right. So arousal comes first and it's the process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. Right. And desire it, well, desire is the name that we give to the conscious experience of wanting sex. The hunger, which you say yeah. it's not a hunger. Uh, which it's not a uh, hunger, but it's a curiosity. That's right. sort of like, ooh, what's that? Mm, I would like to go find out more about that. Ooh, right? That feeling, right. that's desire. And for some people, that emerges before they're even aware of any kind of genital response or anything explicitly erotic is happening. And that's, that, that desire feels spontaneous. It feels like the uh, desire is coming first. So fair enough, spontaneous desire, that's fair. But also there's other people for whom their awareness, their that, ooh, what's that? I want some more of that feeling doesn't emerge until the context has already gotten pretty explicitly erotic and uh, they're really aware of their body beginning to respond. And that's responsive desire, and it is also normal. Right. Yeah, and, and you, and this is where we first heard about um, your new book was in the, your New York Times article that came out recently, um, where you were commenting on flabance is it flabanserin? It is flabanserin. Flabanserin. <laughs> the female Viagra, also the pink pill, <laughs> um, that they're trying to get uh, out into the market. But so, um, so you, you guys can check out her article. Probably, I'm sure it's posted on your blog. The dirty normal. Uh, no, there's a there's a link to a it. A link to it, right? It's funny. It, it's I I, I t- say all the time that uh, it's, sex is not a drive. It's not actually a drive. Um, but the title of the of the op ed is uh, "There's nothing wrong with your sex drive." <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, well like, I yeah, think but that's how we relate to it. So yeah. it's going to grab people's attention. No, but I think what's interesting, yeah, absolutely, is, yeah. is that you still have to sort of title the, t- the topic in terms of something that we still understand, even though it's the wrong way of talking about it, right? in order to engage people and get them yeah. to talk about it in a new way. You know, atheists still say, thank God. You just use the words because it's part of the vocabulary. <laughs> exactly. And it, it's a, just a different kind of meaning. Yeah. It'll start shifting, though, as more as like your work and more, I think, as this sort of revolution in new time period goes on. Don't worry, T. 
We're on our way. Baby steps. Baby steps. Thank you. Um, So the important thing for me is if you have responsive desire and are not experiencing spontaneous desire, especially if you used to experience like early on in a relationship, the attachment, romance, falling in love fire is lighting the sex fire too, right? And so you're experiencing spontaneous desire. Later on in a relationship when the love burns down to a smolder, uh, it won't necessarily be sparking spontaneous desire as much and so you experience desire as more responsive um if you believe that the only healthy way to experience desire is spontaneous then you're going to believe that you're broken right yes if you believe that you're broken does that make your sex life better no but no no, but it also i think it also encourages you to find a different partner because we're told right we like our culture is telling us in media and everything that that's what sex is supposed to that's the experience of sex that we're supposed to have and so if you don't have mm-hmm. it then you think oh well then i need to go get a new partner i need to change my life in some way because it's right broken. in the same way that you buy a new lipstick if you're dissatisfied with your current one no longer doing it for you yeah. right well that raises an interesting question for me because then i immediately think well when do you end a relationship versus staying together you know and how do you know and is it is it a matter of fixing your chemistry or or you know changing your response functions um or is it just time to move on which is a great question but we're going to go to break real quick and then when we come back let's talk about that and um also emily which this is a great segue into monogamy um and this whole spontaneous i want to continue with the spontaneous and yeah. responsive uh desire okay we're speaking with emily nagoski of the book come as you are tweet us at tsx talk you can find more information on her at the dirty normal.com Welcome to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. And we're talking with Emily Nagoski. She's the author of the new book, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Sex. Sorry. The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Um, And you can find her work on thedirtynormal.com. And you can tweet her at Emily Nagoski. Emily, welcome back. So, Hello. Hi. We had a little cliffhanger question. <laughs> yes, we did. We were talking about the di- the difference between spontaneous desire and responsive. Well, no, and I right. and then I asked, 
And um, and uh, so we were talking about changing, you know, once your relationship shifts from spontaneous to responsive, um, which it may in fact happen. And I suppose most women, I guess, in the research are responsive. Like, uh, if, mo- The majority of women, in fact, the majority of people overall uh, experience both spontaneous and responsive desire, depending on the context. Okay. Um, Sorry, can we, I don't, I left, we had our little cliffhanger question. I know, about, I'm getting there, I'm okay. getting there. So about, uh, we talked about once your relationship shifts, we tend to go out and get a different partner or change our lives in some way because we think that something's broken. And then uh, T, I think it brings up the question of monogamy and when, so when do we then end a relationship yeah. versus, um, well, I guess monogamy is sort of a separate question. No, but, but I wondered if you could comment just on that idea of when I was reading this, I'm going, okay, great. I, I can work on all these things. Is there a time where you just go, okay, this isn't working? You know, is it ever just we're actually not sexually compatible or something? If you actively dislike the sex you're having with the person, that's a really bad sign. If you actively dislike it versus are just bored with it. Versus having well, positive memories and kind bored of... Is- Bored is fixable, right? Uh, and there's a difference between I actively want not to have sex with this person versus I don't spontaneously experience desire for sex with this person. But when they come over and start kissing on my neck, when I'm in the right state of mind, my whole body lights up and it totally works. Okay. Okay. That's a good distinction. Right? Yes. Um, so, Okay. So one, I, you know, okay, so it's interesting because I'm thinking about this and I'm like, okay, you know, monogamy is a big question of mine and there's a lot of research out there now in, in um, sexuality that's talking about or questioning monogamy. Like, are we really monogamous or is monogamy killing our sex drive or, you know, these kinds of questions. I think the science is fascinating. Where, what have you found about that? Where do you, what do you think? Yeah, do you feel like it's just the wrong question to be asking? I feel like monogamy is, though, it's not, it's not the monogamy itself that changes sex. It's the way people do monogamy. There are couples that sustain strong sexual connections over multiple decades. What the research shows us is those are people who have a strong friendship at the foundation of their relationship and who prioritize sex. They make the decision that sexual pleasure is important in their relationship and they create space for it. But if you don't like the sex in your relationship, why would you prioritize it, right? So it has to be the kind of sex that you like having. And non-monogamy is not just about having other sexual partners. It's also about building emotional connections with other people as well, So, which gets a lot more complicated. So monogamy, I mean, from a biological perspective, uh, there's the wonderful work of Bobby Lowe. So this is we don't know this for sure, but a theory that I'm really interested in is that humans create uh, sociosexual structures dependent on the resource abundance of the environment. So in the most resource poor environments where it's a struggle to survive, we'll uh, construct societies that are polyandrous, where it's one woman and multiple men, uh, because that's what it takes to sustain a woman who is sustaining a child. Um, in moderate resource abundance environments, we have poly, uh, polygonous right. 
relationship structure, one man, multiple women, and usually it's only a very small minority of men who get any women at all. They're the richest. Um, and in highly resource abundant societies like the one we have now, that's where we build a sociosexual structure that's uh, monogamous. But there's a difference between a sociosexual structure, like the rules of the culture are monogamy versus the behavior are monogamy. Even monogamous bird species, a lot of them are sort of the rules are they co-parent, but they actually do have uh, extra pair copulation. Right. Like social monogamy. Right. Is that the right term? I don't. I don't uh, well, I wouldn't apply it to birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just a term that I've, I've seen around. But yes. OK. Yes. Either way, so okay, so interesting, and and yeah, I I that model is really, um, it sounds fairly accurate. Yeah, can you it makes sense? Explain a little bit about when in the book you talk about context for women and how their sexuality is operating a little differently from men, um, and and um, I don't know, yeah, just how that works. Yeah, sure. So there's this sort of cultural. Oh, annoyance thing that women are so complicated. The thing you like today, yesterday you found it annoying. You, I don't understand. You're so complicated, right? Uh, no, women aren't complicated, but they are sensitive to context. And the example I always go back to is tickling. You can imagine a scenario where you're feeling flirty and warm and affectionate uh, toward your certain special someone, right? And they come over and they start tickling you. And you, that's at least a possibility that that could feel fun and good and even lead to nookie, right? Yeah. And if that exact same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you are pissed off at them, you want to punch them in the face, <laughs> right? Yes. It's exactly the same sensation. But because the context is different, you, the perception of the sensation is opposite, Right. Right. Yes. So and this is what I the to kissing on. on the neck, if you're already in a great state of mind, feels great. The kissing on the neck when you're in the middle of your to-do list, not so much. Yeah. And I have to say this reminded me, you know, about hormonal shifts as well. And I, I remember having a lover once that, you know, it kind of touched my nipple and I went, ouch, you know, and he said, that's funny. You're not normal. And he goes, oh, right. You're on your period, which made me more sensitive. Right. So I needed less pressure and just how much that's in a more basic physical you know, literal like hormonal shift that's happening. And that that's not even getting into whatever's happening in my life, like how, you know, where I am in my brain, um, but how much yep. a woman's body's changing during, you know, her cycle in a month. And women vary in the ways that their hormonal cycle influences their interest in sex. There are some women who are most interested in sex when they're ovulating, some who are most interested when they are uh, about to start the period and some right after their period. Women just vary tremendously in the way hormones influence their sexuality. Right. I think that came, comes back to what you were saying about science and biology to understand it better. Um, where statistics, like you can say that, yes, this on average, women are like this. On average, men are like this. But within it, I mean, you can find a woman who's just like a man and you can find a man who's just like a woman. And I don't know, all the, all the diversity that's going on. Absolutely. Um, which is a huge relief. To acknowledge and know. <laughs> when, I mean, on the one hand, I really want women to be able to talk with each other about their sexual experiences, to be having these conversations. And I want it not to be a comparison because everyone is just going to be different from everyone else. Totally. And it's not that some people are doing it right and others are doing it wrong. It's that everybody does it differently. What works for one person will not necessarily be what works for another person. 
I hear you and I see and I and I think that's super important yet when like when it comes to some of the larger things like looking at spontaneous versus response desire I don't know we kind of need to look at that like I come from the camp of feeling like or thinking that I was broken right and I don't so no I you raise a good point I I mean something that comes to mind for me is um I you know I had a friend who has difficulty orgasming during sex I happen to orgasm during sex not always but if I'm turned on enough and and proper arousal occurs before penetration um I come during sex so so I I gave her some pointers and tips and I said, well, maybe try this and maybe try that. And, you know, if you use a vibrator during, you know, penetration, you can sometimes come that way. I, you know, so in that sense, I do feel there are things good that you to can, question. Right. And, well, and discussion allows people to try certain things. Right. right. I mean, she was truly like, I've not, I didn't know that. I can, I've never tried this. I've never um, gone for clitoral stimulation when I'm on top of my, my boyfriend you know, wow, really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. So, so by just having this conversation with me, you know, it allowed her to go, Oh, okay. I'm going to try these. And you know, I think present day, she hasn't orgasmed yet during sex, but uh, she's on her way. But she's 30% at least of women basically never orgasm from penetration. But is that because they, there's something we don't it's know? Because it's not enough. So it's because it, most women are orgasmic from clitoral stimulation and you get almost none from vaginal penetration. So yeah, you're exactly right that if you want to have orgasms with penetration, add stimulation to the clitoris in any way that you can. Uh, so that you have an orgasm during penetration, but it's not from penetration. Right, right. And I didn't mean to say that it was, but I guess I, right. when I have sex, it is because there's clitoral stimulation happening. Like it's this sort of, and for me, it feels like a dual orgasm kind of like from the external clitoris and then and internal happening simultaneously. And so sometimes I wonder how much of it is um, a lot of cultural repression and being in your head and all these things that prevent that as well as ignoring this primary button, if you will, or, or area that allows you to reach, you know, orgasm. I, I don't, you know, so I wonder if those percentages would change if we adapted the model of, of female arousal. I don't know. Why does anybody give a shit about orgasm during penetration? <laughs> Good yeah. point. Because we're, I don't know, we're animals and we, I don't know, want to push the button on the feeder and <laughs> stimulate our brain. I don't know. Well, sure, we want to have orgasms. So having orgasms is like almost all women can have orgasms. Right. Um, only a minority are reliably orgasmic from penetration alone. But why does orgasm with penetration have this place this hierarchical shining beacon of success mm-hmm. as a woman, if you can have an orgasm during penetration, oh, that's because of patriarchy. That's exactly. because that's men what I was like say. it when girls come on their dicks. Exactly. <laughs> and, that's, that and that's the experience for men. And they think that that should be our experience too. <laughs> yeah. Well, Yes, I totally agree. I do. No, and you're right. And it's funny. I feel like I've I've been caught like, oh, here I am talking about it like it's supposed to happen that way. But um, I guess I guess maybe in my anecdote with this girl, it's not that she has to come that way. Um, 
I don't know. I guess I found. And you were right, just saying instead of saying, "Oh, it's okay. You're just you, that. Just accept it. You don't orgasm." Instead of that's just right. how you are. You're I pushing think, the boundaries and saying, "Hey, yeah." You know, I think try that was my that fear. My fear is that not only is the not only is it patriarchy saying, "Oh, you need to come on the dick," you know, but <laughs> but also that. But if you don't, it's because you don't have to. You're a woman, so you don't orgasm. You know, and I go. What? <laughs> um, and I go, well, you can definitely orgasm and there's like 10, 15 different ways to do it. And, you know, I've had experiences where you do it, you know, with hands, right? The guy can just do it with his hands or whatever it is or for you know, oral sex, like just mm-hmm. um, getting it done however, however you need to. And then this is a big conversation between me and A, which is, you know, this also, which is like you don't have to come or orgasm to be technical, you know, during sex, Right. Sort of that, that you can pressure still enjoy to it also without the goal. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Emily. Sometimes I, it's just not worth the effort. It's really time consuming and exhausting. It's, one of the difficulties is that we expand the conversation about women's sexual pleasure. Like we can have orgasms. We have a right to have orgasms. But that doesn't mean we have to have orgasms. And making sure all right. those parts are included in the conversation is totally crucial. That we can, we're allowed to, we have a right to it, and we're not required to if we don't want to. Can I just say, I, I really do wonder, and this has been a bug for me in sex, is that I feel like there is pressure from my partners for me to orgasm because I feel yeah. like they need the validation that they're doing a good job. And it makes me a little angry, and I will voice this to them when I, when I feel this going on, but I, I don't know. I guess I'm just throwing it out there. Like maybe this is based in ego. Like they need gratification and saying, yes, you're doing a good yeah. job. Maybe we could tell them in a different way. Well, and that I compare it to the, um, uh, that you go to the county fair and you hit the, with the giant mallet, you hit the thing and the thing goes up and hits the bell, ding, and then you're a man. Right, right. That's <laughs> their, your partner's orgasm is like that. It proves your value <laughs> exactly. as a masculine person. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, yeah. and, and then they say, they, I, you know, I, they, I hear, well, it makes me feel so good to see you come. And it's like, yeah, but I think because it makes your ego make you feel good. I don't know. <laughs> you know what's funny is, I, and I get everyone's stories different, um, I just feel like I've had moments where I'm dedicated to orgasming, and the guy will be like, it's okay, you don't have to, and I'm like, I'm coming. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I know. It's just my, you know, but again, I think the, the important point, and thank you, Emily, for bringing that up, which is, you know, you're entitled to whatever it is that you want in a way, right? It's, and it's finding that and speaking about it freely. Right. And not yeah. giving into the pressure to orgasm. Um, Emily, I wanted to, we're running out of time, but I did want to touch on this and um, I, I could have spent a lot of time on this, but I'm really interested in what's going on with response desire. I, spontaneous desire, we understand it's sort of involuntary so far as I can tell. Response desire though, when we're in what you mentioned as the, sort of the, sm- is it smoldering? Like not the f- burning yeah. fire, but the you know the slow burning coal stage of a relationship where things have died down, and yeah, you're not like ready to you know jump your partner at that moment. Can you paint us a picture of response desire and what we can do about that? Yeah. So when you're experiencing responsive desire rather than spontaneous, what you do is get a sense of what the contexts are that shift you into an active interest in sex. And that it'll be some combination of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. Mm -hmm. So if it's like 
you just have a huge to-do list and you need to get things done and get it out of the way, sometimes putting it on your calendar and having there be the sex date where you've just decided it's Saturday, two o'clock in the afternoon, you meet your partner naked in bed, you allocate this hour of time and this is what you're going to do and sex may or may not happen but at least you're going to be naked in bed together that's awesome right that might be a way that it happens or you realize that uh when you go on vacation and you get away from all of the life demands and household and children and work and all the rest of it that's when your break really frees up and you can uh, experience spontaneous desire. It's also reasonable to say yes to sex that you enjoy, but aren't, you know, burning and hot for. Okay. If your partner is like, I would really like to have sex. And you're like, yeah, okay. Right. That's but, fine. Right. And they can take the lead in that sense. It, 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 not every sexual experience that you share with your partner has to be like, peak experience of your life. Right. Gotcha. For Some sure. of it can just be like the sex that you have. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like that idea of really scheduling it in a way. And I think this speaks really? to, yeah, I think this speaks to our episode last week a little bit with oxytocin and just how that physical contact and taking the time to connect, you know, releases um, the hormone of, or of oxytocin and allows for a stronger, uh, or allows for stress release and like a number of other things. Um, yeah, greater time spent cuddling after sex is a better predictor of sexual satisfaction than anything that happens during the sex. Right. Mm, interesting. Well, and that idea of, of full body touch and uh, stimulation rather than hitting, like, erogenous zones, um, that you the know, whole body is, you know, an arousal center. You know what? what's tickling my mind right now is that as we're talking about scheduling naked time and, like, <laughs> touch and... <laughs> I'm like, this is sad that we maybe, is this an indicator that we don't value touch and physical connection or that we have some? No, the fact that we schedule it indicates that we do value it. But why can't it, but I'm not seeing it. Like the fact, to me, it's like the fact that we schedule it means that there's not hugging and and organic. Yeah, it's not, it's not embedded in your lifestyle of like kissing and but nurturing that's a larger and touching question. And I mean you're asking a asking. question about our society and and that it should probably shift. No. Yeah, and you it's I mean, you know, if you have a job and children and pets and life and other things you want to do, there needs to be time when you're not really focused on all of this stuff. True. And if your life is sufficiently relaxed and calm and happy that, like, every night when you get in bed, you're like, yeah, I'm ready to go. <laughs> that's great. But that's a gigantic privilege. <laughs> right. That's true. Huh. Okay. Well, thank you, Emily. I think we are we're, we're over time. time. Yes. Yeah. So, hey, but... we've, uh, well, we've been talking with Emily Nagoski of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. Um, and you can find her work at thedirtynormal.com. And you can tweet her at Emily Nagoski. Emily, it's been such a pleasure. We love your work. Keep it up. We love your book. Yeah, thank you for relieving people's anxiety around the U.S., maybe globally. I don't know if it's being translated. It should be. Hopefully. Yeah, Polish, right? <laughs> totally. Nice. <laughs> Polish women everywhere <laughs> liberated. <laughs> All right. Well, you've been listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. Tweet us at TA Sex Talk. I'm T. And I'm A. Good night. This is